Good morning, everybody. It is wonderful to worship with you as as a parent who dedicated two of his children this morning, I want to thank you for your investment in healthy children and healthy families, for the fact that many of you commit to serving the Lord Jesus by serving in family ministries and children's ministries. And it was fun to watch up here in this service uh, how some of the kids were dancing, some of them were crying, some of them were kissing the pulpit. Uh, that was pretty much a picture of my family in the first service as well, just us. I mean, uh, the two-year-old poked herself in the eye about four seconds before we walked up on the platform. So she was kind of going, who's out there? And the one-year-old knows like three words. And he caught, the uh, cute little Norbo girl over here caught his eye. And so he started looking over and talking to her. Uh, she wasn't interested. And he doesn't handle rejection very well. So he started to cry. And it was an eventful child dedication. But that's my life. Uh, that is my life on a regular basis, and I love my life. Uh, I wonder if you love yours. The title of this morning's message is Loving God and Hating Life. Do you love your life? Classical pianist Arthur Rubenstein once said, I have found that if you love life, life will love you back. Actor Anthony Hopkins said, I love life because what more is there? And Benjamin Franklin once said, Dost thou love life? Then do not squander time, for that is the stuff life is made of. Our text this morning addresses the life that God blesses. And as I think about my life, I think about all of God's blessings that have been painted throughout the course of my life. I think about the difficulties that we have in this life, even the difficulties that we have right now that we're dealing with in my family. And I know you have diff great difficulties as well. But I can honestly say I love my life. I do. And so when Jesus says in John chapter 12, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life, that causes an uneasy feeling within many of us. And we have to explore what that means. And so as we turn our attention to John chapter 12 this morning, I want to ask you to pray with me as we ask for God's help. And how we approach his work and our work as we approach loving the life that he gives us or hating the life that he gives us. Let's pray together. Father God, we pray with your Holy Spirit working in your word and working in the hearts and the minds of each one of us here. We ask for your help, Lord, that you would continue to challenge us, that you'd give us the right perspective on the events of our days and how we orient our time and how it relates to your good work. We desire to be a people who do not just live God-honoring lives, but have God-honored lives. And we know that that is your purpose in this text. And so help us, we ask, for the sake of your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 12, starting at verse 20, says this. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, 
So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus answered them, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show them by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is a teaching about Jesus' death, about God's glory, about how we receive God's greatest blessings in this life. And in the middle of these ideas, Jesus, in verse 24 gives us the principle that drives the understanding for this passage. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We see Jesus using this agricultural description to help us understand his work and our lives. If we were to summarize the principle that he's talking about, we might summarize it this way. Death is the necessary circumstance for a fruitful life. Death is the necessary circumstance for a fruitful life. And he applies it to himself and in a different type of way, he applies it to his followers as well. And so let's look at both of those this morning. First, we see this principle applied to Jesus himself, and we see that he loses his life to save ours. If you have been a Christian for any amount of time, if you've been at church once, you've heard this message again and again and again, that Jesus sacrifices himself to save those who would repent and believe. 
And as Pastor Chris taught last week, the Jews were waiting for their Messiah to come to be a political ruler among them. The expectation overflowed on Palm Sunday as people lined the streets, hundreds if not thousands of them shouting, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But shortly thereafter, Jesus bursts their bubble. He says to Andrew and Philip in verse 24, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But if you were standing there just hours or maybe even days earlier, if you witnessed the crowd of people, if you heard their song, you would think to yourself, well, wait a minute. The hour has already come. You were just glorified. And he says, no, 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 no. My glory is coming in a different way. Death is the necessary circumstance for a fruitful life. And he relates his glory to his death. And we see three ways in which a fruitful life emerge from his death. I'll combine the first two for the sake of time. Look with me at verse 31. We see that because of Jesus' death, because the hour has come of it, that the judgment of the world will happen and the ruler of the world, or Satan, will be cast out. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, he actually casts out Satan from his position of rule and reign in the earth. Now to understand that, I need you to take a step back and try to view our reality through the spiritual realm. Try to view it in terms of kingdoms, if you will. A kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. Jesus talks in these types of spiritual terms with some regularity in the Gospel of John. We see in the Bible that the devil is referred to as the accuser. He's referred to as the father of lies. He's referred to as the God of the earth. And here, in verse 31, he is referred to, the devil is referred to as the ruler of the world. The scope of his rule is limited to the domain of darkness that we see in Colossians chapter 1. But 1 John 5, 19 says this, We know that we are from God, John says to the Christians, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So God has allowed Satan rule and certain types of authorities in earth following the rebellion of mankind against him in sin. And as such, the picture of our spiritual reality is that there is this evil ruler, that we have become slaves to him, that sin has become the standard interaction for humankind, that death has been the temporary and the eternal consequence of such actions, and that as the course of history continues to unfold, humankind is ever more engaging in self-destruction. The whole world has become the evil domain of the devil. But then the light came into the darkness. His name was Jesus. John chapter 1 tells us that. And this theme of Jesus as the light is woven throughout this whole gospel of John. 
And his death and resurrection being the pinnacle point of his life and ministry, in that he solidifies an opportunity not to continue to live in the self-destructive pattern, not to continue to have the consequences of death, not to be slaves anymore to the ruler of this dark world, but instead he gives the opportunity for fruitful life. And he does that by casting the evil ruler out, by forgiving the sins of those who would turn to him, by giving new life to them, a new kingdom to them, and a new ruler to them, Jesus himself. Now, I know how this sounds. If you are into science fiction, if you read comic books, if you watch certain types of films, you say, this is like cosmic reality warfare type of stuff. Could this possibly be real? But remember, Jesus did not come simply to address material things. He came to address immaterial, spiritual realities. And we don't often go through life thinking about kingdoms of light and darkness and dark domain, though we sense it all the time. Jesus comes and gets right to the core of the problem. Satan and all of those who would remain in their sin would be judged. And the power of this former ruler of the world is stripped and he is cast out. And what this means is that he no longer has reign over you. Now I know that it might feel like he has reign over us from time to time. I know that it feels that way when I give in to my anger. I know that it might feel that way when there seems like there's temptation lurking around every corner, when despair has overcome me. But we are no longer bound to those ways. The ruler has been cast out. You have a different king. You live in a different kingdom. And you are free. Do you remember the principle? Death is the necessary circumstance for fruitful life. And in his death and resurrection, Jesus judges the world, casts out Satan, and thus provides you with all of this incredible space to experience God, to know his forgiveness, and to have fruitful life. He gives another way that this happens in verse 32. Look with me. In verse 32, we see that Jesus' death provides fruitful life and that he draws all people to himself. Now, time fails to give us the opportunity to go real deep here, but to suffice it to say that in a world that has a variety of desires and purposes ever set before us, the death of Jesus on the cross makes him attractive to people of all Nations. And I use that word attractive very intentionally because think with me about what it means to draw people to something. This word to draw. To draw has the nuance of a powerful attraction. The word itself has a connotation of taking something that's very difficult and pulling it toward another end, another purpose, another direction. Some of you have experienced this in your life in other areas, whether it's the single man who was pulled out of the freedom of a bachelor's life because the draw of his wife 
was so powerful. Whether it was leaving a location that you love to go to a lesser desirable location because the draw of a specific career path was incredibly powerful. But more than that, more than that, if you're here today and you're a Christian, you know this draw that I'm talking about. You know that at some point you looked to Jesus on the cross, the place where God meets humanity, the place where he extends grace and mercy, the place where you and me are put beneath him to say, woe is me, I've sinned. And he showers his love upon you instead of his condemnation. This is an incredibly attractive draw. And Jesus says that this draw happens for all nations at that place of the cross. Death is a necessary circumstance for fruitful life. And he loses his life to save ours. And so naturally, we have a response to that reality. And it's talked about in a number of ways in the Bible. But here we see that this principle is also applied to you and to me. I mean, as I mentioned, death being the necessary circumstance for a fruitful life, we understand that be applied to Jesus, but how is that possibly applied to us? Well, we lose our life, he says, to keep it. Remember verse 24? Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. But then he goes on to say, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now at the beginning of the message, I asked this very basic question. What kind of life does God bless? I mean, after all, we all want a good life. We all want happiness. We all want joy. We all want to love our lives. And so when he says, if you love your life, you're going to lose it, we need to dig in a little bit deeper here, don't we, and figure out what's going on. And what we see here is Jesus using what we call hyperbole. Hyperbole, for those of you literature buffs out there, is very... Simply the use of certain words to exaggerate or emphasize a point. He's intentionally exaggerating to emphasize a point. Now, we use hyperbole all the time, often without even knowing it. We say things like, I've told you a million times. My wife says to our children just yesterday, Girls, there are Legos that are covering the entire floor. Hyperbole. John F. Kennedy at a White House dinner honoring 49 Nobel Prize winners, April 29, 1962, says, I think that this is the most extraordinary collection of human talent, of human knowledge that has ever been gathered in the White House, with the possible exception of when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. Hyperbole. And so when Jesus says, if you love your life, you're going to lose it, and you need to hate your life to keep it, it is supposed to sit wrong with you. It is supposed to sting. It's supposed to make you say, what? 
And that's exactly what it does. What does he mean? He's making a point. And the point is that if you go through life finding your deepest purpose and seeking lasting meaning in the pleasures of this world that are focused on us, you might gain temporary pleasure while simultaneously receiving eternal damnation. Because our lives are not supposed to be simply about us. I love my life. And as an American living in the late 1900s and early 2000s, I've been thoroughly trained in the art of consumerism. During seasons of my life, I fall prey to becoming a materialist. It's become second nature for me to seek comfort in every situation that's before me instead of embracing the uncomfortable. And the options for my entertainment are seemingly limitless. I have to constantly battle against these desires becoming the driving force of my life. And as I look around the room, I know I'm not alone in this. Actually, this is one of the defining cultural markers of our time. The desire for self-consumption, self-pleasure, self-comfort. I have the constant temptation of making life all about me or those select few closest to me. And if it's all about me, who is really in the position of greatest honor, of greatest respect, of greatest love, of greatest priority? Well, me. I've taken the place of God. And what do we call that when something or someone takes the place of God? We call it idolatry. And so what Jesus is getting at here is that in the realm of darkness, the natural disposition of humankind is self-idolatry. It's to say, I'm the most important. My desires are the most significant. My comfort is of ultimate purpose. And if we do that, we find ourselves in a troubling place. What we see here is a matter of priority. Most of the delights of this world, of course, are not simply evil in and of themselves, but when they're placed in the highest priority, they actually become treacherous. And Jesus continues the hyperbole, and he says that if you hate your life, you will keep it for eternal life. A couple of things to notice. Again, Jesus isn't saying that you should actually hate every day as you go about. He's not saying that you should inflict pain upon yourself intentionally. He's not saying that the types of self-denial that you have are supposed to be long-term injury to you. What he is saying is that our lives should not be dominated by the things that make us in, make this life most enjoyable. There's a greater purpose. And that greater purpose in keeping our life for eternity means that there's an indication that we understand that some things are happening in and through this world that are not about me. They're greater than me because there is one who is greater than me. His name is God. 
and his son, Jesus. He's saying that death is the necessary circumstance for fruitful life. Dying to yourself is this necessary circumstance. So what kind of life does God bless? What happens when you move from the position of most important to second or third or fourth chair? What sort of role do you have? Well, he tells us in verse 26, the type of life that God blesses is he he blesses his servants. Jesus gives us this wonderful office of a servant. He says in verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Are you serving him? Serving Jesus is not merely a general attitude. Nor is it merely sort of checking the box of the next ministry ministry task. To serve Jesus, and what he's really talking about here, is that we orient our lives in a way that promotes his agenda over our own. And that is very different than adding his agenda into our lives. To serve Jesus means orienting our entire agenda to promote his rather than our own. Are you, so are you serving him? It's a great office that Jesus gives us, this office of servant. And it is the key to a fruitful life. A little over 15 years ago, the New York Times ran an article about a woman named Mary Louise Starkey. She had a difficult job. She was trying to turn ordinary people into servants. The current economic climate of the late 90s and early 2000s fueled the need for more servants. In that decade preceding, the number of American households worth $10 million or more quadrupled in our nation. And the newly rich wanted help to manage their large homes, their busy lifestyles. And so servants were needed. So Mary Starkey's International Institute for Household Management of Denver, Colorado, was formed to try to meet that need. With household managers earning in between $60,000 and $120,000 a year, applications were at an all-time high. But servanthood... It's not easy to learn. Those enrolled in the rigorous eight-week course devoted themselves to mastering the more mundane things of running a large household, dealing with trades and outside vendors, managing household staff, learning table manners, even taking cooking classes. Instruction was given to them about setting a formal dinner table and ironing table linens so that they're perfectly crisp and wrinkle-free. But perhaps the most difficult element of servanthood was that element of personal self-denial. A consulting beautician at the school recently told an attractive young female student to trim her long blonde hair, to lose the showy earrings, to lay off the red lip liner. It seemed that her good looks were drawing attention away from her employers. And servants are not to draw attention to themselves. 
Their only goal is to meet the needs of another. Jesus calls all of those who would follow him to this role of servant. It is the natural role and posture of one who recognizes that they aren't the center of the universe. But there is one who is. And in case it sounds like this office of servant is beneath you, well, let me give two significant benefits for those in this office of service. Jesus does so, where he says, first, those who are servants will be where I am, verse 26. We recognize that no servant is greater than their master, yet the master wants to reside with his servants. This is unique. This is a wonderful reality. I mean, servants are sent to the servant quarters. Servants have a task to do, and then they're sent to their separate living space, right? I mean, any of you who watch Downton Abbey know that. And yet, this master wants to live with his servants. What kind of master is he? Beyond that, we see the second benefit, and it's a great reward. It's the reward for those in this office of servant that God, the Father, will honor them. You want to be blessed by God. You want to know his benevolence. You desire his favor. You pray to that end. You hope in faith that he will do more than just provide for you, but that he will actually be generous to you. You want to live a God-honoring life, yes, but you want a God-honored life as much as you want a God-honoring life. And he promises that for those who serve him. For God to honor you as a servant is to honor you in your soul. It's that you would know true and lasting peace and purpose. And for those of you who are serving him with your life, you know this to be true. You've experienced it in a way that you never would have had before and that friends and colleagues and coworkers and family are asking, what is so different about you? For God to honor you. As Spurgeon said, that he is persuaded that one such honor will be by success by prospering him in his ministry and in whatsoever he may attempt for Christ. Finally, for God's honor to be upon you, you have honor on the last day. And that last day is when your name is seen as being written in the Lamb's Book of Life, when you take your place among the redeemed in an honored position in heaven. But all of that is reserved for servants. So how do you know if you are one? How do you know if your life is really oriented around his agenda rather than your own? There are a lot of questions that we could ask, a lot of different ways we could tackle it, but let me just give you four simple diagnostic questions. These are questions I've been thinking about for myself all week long. I encourage you to write them down, to come back, to think about them later throughout the course of the week. Question number one, how much of your effort in life is devoted to your comfort or to your recreation? Outside of the normal, I have to go to work, I have to do X, Y, or Z, how much of your effort is related to your comfort or to your recreation? 
Number two, likewise, how much of your thought life is directed outside of your own desires? These are getting at the idea of how much do we really love our lives in the wrong way or the disproportional way? Here's another question. In what way am I truly in service of Jesus? I talk to a lot of people who say they're in service of Jesus, and, and, and I don't say this judgmentally at all, but they tend to think that it can be sort of a vague expression about how you approach life. And I say, oh, that's wonderful. You're serving Jesus. How? And they go, <gasps> you mean that actually is supposed to have a practical reality on the ground attached to that idea? It's not just some vague sort of disposition? No, it actually means like how? <laughs> or conversely, on the other side, those that say, well, yeah, I'm serving Jesus. I check this box because I serve an X, Y, or Z thing once a week. And though that is wonderful and though it's important, it's still different than reorienting your life to his agenda. In what ways am I truly in service of Jesus? And number four, in what way am I motivated by a desire to be honored by God or a desire to be near to my Savior? These are the great benefits, rewards of the life of a servant. Do you remember the principle? Death is the necessary circumstance for a fruitful life. Death is the necessary circumstance for a fruitful life. Jesus dies to save yours. You die to yourself to keep yours. It's applied to us in that way. The focus of my life is no longer on me. I'm not going to simply pander to my self-interest anymore. I have a new life. And this life is focused on the one who gave it to me, Jesus himself. You will never lead a truly faithful life until you come to the place where life isn't about you. It's about the one who saved you. Donald Barnhouse tells a story about one of his journeys to Africa, and I think it is an apt description of God's work in our lives this process of dying to self, of giving over my agenda, my affections, my time, my talents. He says that on his journey, he stopped overnight at a mission house of a young American bride and her Australian husband. And the subject of the wedding came up, and they brought out some pictures that a friend had taken of the affair. And good-natured joking began to occur around the events. And the young husband said, I had always said that the last thing I was going to do was to marry an American. And they all laughed. And then he said, do you know what? She wouldn't kiss me, not even once, until the day of our wedding ceremony. And they all laughed again, but then he replied, as now the young bride is blushing. And she gets up and she walks toward the kitchen, and he calls out to her, But once I got the first one, once I got that first kiss, the rest came rather easy. And she went on her way. She went through the door. She cast her husband a blushing look. And Barnhouse says it didn't take much insight to see that he had found the way into her heart. That it may have taken him a year or more to get there. But once he found it, it was open forever. And my friends, that is the Lord's way 
with us. That the incredible draw of the gospel, the power of Jesus on the cross, his death to provide us new life, that once he finds his way into our heart, he has it. It's open to him in an ongoing fashion. We don't have to go back through the steps again and again and again of giving it over to him. We're his. We know that he loves us. We've experienced the joy and the purpose that comes with that. And if death is a necessary circumstance for a fruitful life, then I gladly die to myself for this one that I might live for him. I pray that that is your sentiment as well. That as you continue to surrender to him in a variety of ways, that you enjoy that wonderful sense of peace and purpose, that you enjoy his nearness, that you enjoy a life that God honors. Let me pray to that end as we close with a final song. Father God, it is good to be with your people and to hear again this reminder of what a life committed to you looks like and how that can only come because you first died to give us this fruitful life. I know that the people of Old North Church do not want a life that is defined by malaise, a life that is defined by stagnancy, We want a fruitful life. Father, do this good work in us as individuals, as families, and as a corporate body as we continue to surrender to you. Hear our prayers. Hear our song now. In Jesus' name, amen.